Well, welcome to the Someone to Tell the Two podcast. We're always, always grateful for you joining us. We're always um, hopeful that you will love the conversations as much as we do. And this is, again, was one that we loved. Uh, Stephen Shedleski, Shed, as he likes to be called, was just, uh, it's really engaging and articulate. And he spoke so much of the language, used so much of the language that we use in the work that we do about listening and vulnerability and compassion, empathy, and emotional intelligence, uh, saying all those things, those things that we got to talk about with him. I'm excited uh, for his book to come out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, he's, uh, he's a great guy. And we're always excited when we can talk with someone, you know, from another country, Toronto. He was talking about from Toronto. It's not all that far from us. But uh, when we, we gain an international uh, platform uh, to show that uh, this movement of listening and compassion, empathy, vulnerability is really international and uh, you know crosses cultures, crosses places, crosses all kinds of um, all, all kinds of things, and we're you know, always glad to see that. So let's tell you just a little bit about Shed. Shed engages with people in meaningful ways so that we can connect with depth and live in a more fulfilled world. As the head of of brand experience igniter at Simon Sinek, the company of the best-selling author and popular British American inspirational speaker. With a knack for sharing the right words at the right moment, Stephen is provocative, captivating, and lighthearted in his presentations. A dedicated aide to the Simon Sinek team and those they serve, Stephen is first in line to support those who seek to discover, articulate, and bring their why to life. He has co-hosted the Start With The Why podcast with more than 715,000 downloads in over 180 countries. Stephen graduated from the Richard Ivey School of Business with a focus in leadership, communication, and strategy. He brings the message to inspire people and organizations around the world and serves clients in nearly every industry. And as Michael mentioned, Stephen lives in Toronto, Canada with his wife and two children. And we hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Shed, welcome to the Someone to Tell To podcast. It's just so good to have you with us here today. And uh, thanks for just making some time. Yeah, my pleasure, Tom and Michael. It's great to join you and I look forward to uh, having a conversation of value with both of you and your audience. Awesome. Thank you. Well, just so our listeners know, I attended a webinar about a month ago that Shed led and it just, I found it to be riveting. It's probably the one of the premier uh, webinars that I've heard in the last year easily. So I immediately reached out to Michael. I'm like, we got to, we got to reach out and see if he'd, he'd come on our program. So thanks. Thank you. That means a lot. So uh, first question here is just, you write and say that games like football and chess are finite with firm rules and clear endpoints, but business and life in general are infinite. There's ultimately no such thing as winning because there's always a new set of challenges those who thrive in the long run, the ones who frustrate and run circles around others and their competition and contribute more to society and their bottom line are the ones who play by infinite rules. They do things that enable them to outmaneuver, out-innovate, and outlast others. So game theory is if you have uh, two or more players, you have a game. And as it turns out, there are these two types of games. There are finite games and there are infinite games. And we're all players in both of these games, whether we're aware of it or not. So finite games have known players agreed upon rules and metrics of success. And there's a clear endpoint. There are clear beginnings, middles, and ends of finite games. All games of sport are finite games. Uh, that's why we can turn over a baseball card and understand what those stats mean. Chess, Monopoly, though Monopoly feels like it goes on forever, it's definitely finite. Uh, winning an award, finite. Uh, but we need to look at the context within which those games exist. Infinite games have known and unknown players. Players can come and go. The rules can change. There's no standard metric of success, which is why I find it very funny when a company will say, we're number one in our industry. What industry are you in? Oh, we're in the same industry as you. We're also number one. Like I've flown on many of crappy airlines that claim to be number one. I never got the survey. Um, so uh, players come and go. The game doesn't care about the players. The game cares about perpetuating the game, keeping it at play. 
no agreed upon rules or metrics of success, and there is no endpoint. Though there may be mile markers, an infinite game is like running in a marathon that has no finish line. You can see the finish line, you can smell the finish line, uh, but you can never quite touch it. You can even taste it, but you can't ever reach it or, or, or touch it. And so if you think of games that we play in that have no distinct end, there's many. Uh, life, though we will die, we don't know when. Um, and there's no winner of life. Even Charlie Sheen has to admit to that one. There's no winner. Um, there's no winner of marriage or relationships or friendship. There's no winner of career. Like I can't say, Tom and Michael, I, I've done career. I've won. You both should probably stop. Like that's not how it works, right? Um, uh, and believe me, I haven't won. Um, uh, career, business, healthcare, education, geopolitics. There are all these games that have no clear endpoint. And though there might be points uh, that are finite that you can win something like an election, governance is infinite. And so we have to be aware of the game that we're in and play with the appropriate mindset for the game that we're in. If we're in life or relationships or business, those are all infinite games. We uh, we're both runners, so we appreciate the the marathon uh, analogy. Right, that's right where my mind yeah. went, and and we. Uh, the, as much as we like to do it, we, we're happy when there's an end to that, uh, you know, before we collapse yeah. and die. Uh, so uh, <laughs> that, we, we, that, that was a nice analogy. But it's, it, it's also, it's, it's important to, to note from the marathon analogy is I've been told, I'm not a runner, but I've been told it's very unnerving to run a marathon without the mile markers. The mile markers help. So I, I, I like, you know, talking about fulfillment and talking about purpose um, and talking about cause and talking about, you know, leading in an infinite game, we can build upon this marathon analogy. So, in, you know, we, we talk about purpose and mission and values and vision, right? What do they all mean? Like, you know, and then people start arguing, no, 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 that's not purpose, that's vision. It's like, who cares? Can we agree upon some terms that we can all use so that we can make progress? That's really the most important piece. So for me, purpose is the reason you run the marathon in the first place. It's why you're doing it, right? Um, uh, uh, vision, or Simon calls it just cause, Simon Sinek calls it just cause, is the finish line that you'll never actually reach. Your mission, I'm fine with mission, but mission is finite. That's why we can say mission accomplished, right? So if we can say mission accomplished, those are the finite metrics and markers along the way. And if you don't have mile markers, you might be at mile 20, what is it? How many miles in a marathon? 26. 26.2. 26.2, right, now I see the sticker. So you could be at 25.2 and around the next bend is the finish line. But if you haven't been tracking miles and you haven't been feeling that momentum, you might give up being like, I, I was at 13.2, wasn't I? You're like, no, 25.2. You're like, no, right? So, so uh, objectives, goals, mile markers, finite metrics are fine, so long as you know that those are relative and arbitrary and not absolute. Um, and then even our values come into play, which is the manner in which we run, the manner in which we conduct ourselves within these races that never end. How does that shift things for leaders who have had this mindset of like working ourselves out of a job? Uh, say, say more about that, Tom. We've heard it said just about leaders like essentially should be able to pass off all of the responsibilities that they've been handed to others. I mean, you're raising up the next generation of leaders. I mean, that's I mean, that is a mindset that I love, which is it is a finite and a, and a, and a fixed and scarce fear based mindset to sort of hoard on to what's yours to, you know, stunt the growth of team members because they're really helping you now as opposed yeah. to the greatest leaders that we all know, love a challenge and have a very calm way of looking, how can I contribute? And if they're done contributing here, they find the next great thing and try to build people up around them. Um, and so it's harder and takes courage, um, but it enables growth for you and the people around you. It's just a way more enjoyable way to live, I, I think, having this sort of infinite mindset rather than a fixed scarce mindset. We'll be right back after the break. 
We use Buzzsprout to create this podcast, and as a small nonprofit team, we really appreciate how easy they make it to get our guests' stories out into the world. With Buzzsprout, you get a beautiful podcast website, audio players to embed into other sites, detailed analytics, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Use the link in the show notes to get a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan and to support our show. As the co-founders of Someone to Tell To, we often find ourselves traveling around between meetings and listening sessions, and we often don't really have time for the little things like grocery shopping. I'm sure many of you have had that experience when at the end of a long workday, you'd rather do anything else than shop for groceries. That's why we're happy to give our listeners the chance to get free delivery on your first Instacart order over $35. You'll get the products you love from your local stores in as fast as one hour. There's nothing quite like sitting down at the end of the day to be present for your family over a home-cooked meal. And takeout just doesn't feel the same. So if you find yourself needing groceries and considering getting takeout instead, get hand-selected products delivered straight to your door. Get free shipping on orders over $35 by using the link in the show notes. Another question here. You, um, you have said that you love to help leaders to listen mm-hmm. and, and, to ha- and to enable or to nurture you know, people to find their voices. Love that. Absolutely love that. Mm-hmm. We're all about listening and we're all about people finding their voices and hearing their voices and letting people know that their voices matter and that, that we want to hear what they have to say. So tell us, how you do that, how you see the way to help leaders listen, as Mm -hmm. well as helping people find the voice that they need to share. Beautiful question, Michael. Thank you. So I'm, I'm writing my first book right now called speak up culture. Um, and the, and the subtitle, uh, to me really matters as any good sub subtitle should, uh, Mm -hmm. the, the subtitle, so speak up culture, when leaders truly listen, people step up. And my, my publisher even said, do you really need the word truly in there? It's just another word. And I'm like, yeah, you need truly. Because mm-hmm. leaders can listen or anyone can listen, which is a skill. The question is, what is the intent behind the listening? Is it generous? Is it curious? Is it compassionate? Because I've witnessed many and experienced great listeners, but use the information they get in the listening in a manipulative way. And so just because you hear someone doesn't mean that you're doing right by them or showing up to serve. So for me, the journey to write this book has been very personal. So first and foremost, when I grew up, I had a stutter and I come from a a line of many stutterers in my family. I married a speech language pathologist. Great choice. Uh, Not just for me, but for for my kids. Um, And so I know what it feels like to lack confidence and to feel voiceless. And when I felt voiceless, I've much more appreciated what it feels like when I do have voice and when my voice does matter, you know. Further, I've been in roles with clients as parts of teams and organizations where there's an amazing speak up culture, where voice is rewarded, where it's easy, seemingly easy or low on fear to have the really hard conversations interpersonally about business strategy, about what's going on in the world and society right now, where those conversations are actually welcome. I mean, we've seen huge backlashes from companies like Coinbase and and Basecamp that essentially said no one's allowed to talk about political issues here. Huge backlash with Basecamp. I believe it was 60 employees. I I could be getting some of the stats wrong, but a significant, like something like 30% of their employees resigned once the CEO with well-intentioned said, we're not talking about politics unless it has, uh, unless it's, it's directly related to our mission. We can't talk about it here. What? Like, I'm not sure how that's going to work. And I think we need to have our organizations as places that if there's anything going on in your existence that that's affecting how you show up at work, pretty sure we should be able to talk about that and to create environments where leaders have the skills and attributes, which is compassion and patience um, and authenticity and vulnerability 
to have these conversations where people feel that their ideas, their concerns, their emotions, even their disagreements um, are important here because it allows them to show up fully and contribute fully at their, at their work, in their community, whatever the organization is. Beautiful answer. And you are saying so many of the words that we say all the time, vulnerability, compassion, truly, uh, truly listen. Uh, those kinds of words uh, and, and phrases and, and some more that you said are exactly uh, what we what we like to do and what we like to say as well. So thank you. Thank you. You've confirmed for us and you've affirmed for us uh, what we're doing also. Good, and we, want to, we want to affirm it back to you. <laughs> Great. It's a marvelous echo chamber when we're in here, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. But yeah, I mean, Tom, I think it, it, it boils back to your question as well, which is the one you asked previously around leaders lifting others up. It's really hard work. And it yep. means that you have to move your ego aside and show up to show up to serve. But it's, you know, in my experience, and once once you get a little bit of a taste of it, there's nothing better than fulfillment, right? Fulfillment is using our strengths to contribute towards something bigger than ourselves. And when us as people or us as leaders see the people around us grow and do more because we exist in their life or or career, there's no better feeling. That's why we love being parents, right? What's the job of a parent? The job of a parent is to see that this precious life goes on to become more, right? That's the job. And I think the link between parenthood and leadership is one and the same. Do you watch a lot of movies? Have you ever seen the movie King's Speech? I have, yes. I mean, that incredible scene when they're in, I think, Westminster Abbey and Lionel Logue, his, his speech therapist, uh, says to King George, you have a voice and he responds, yes, I do. And that's mm -hmm. like that, that pivotal moment where he is just expanding George's horizons. Like he had never been given a voice and he too had had a stutter and how that changed the trajectory of his life and his career. And, you know, I, so I'm, I have a vendetta against the, the term fearless. There's no such thing as a fearless organization or a fearless leader. Like I, I cringe, like I just like, you can't describe someone as fearless because if there were no fear, there's no need for courage, right? They're, they're mm -hmm. one and the same. Fearless doesn't exist. Leaders feel the fear are connected to something bigger than themselves. They feel that fear and they do it anyway because they're, they found something more important, which King George found as well. I mean, a, a leader was needed. Voice was needed to create calm and to create future, um, in the time in history that they were in, which I believe was World War II, if I'm correct. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they needed someone to speak up uh, and to have voice. And so he felt called to do it because if not him, who? Speaking of leaders and courage, <laughs> the perfect, perfect segue is I feel about what's happening in Ukraine today. We yeah. know that you've written some things, that you posted some things about Ukraine and, and being aware and being concerned. And uh, talk, say more about that, the leadership that you're seeing there uh, right now and what that, what that means. President Zelensky was given every opportunity to exile and leave. And he went, no, this is my home. And my ancestors fought for this to be my home. And so I'm staying. Um, and it's been an extraordinary stand of, of, of leadership. Um, whereas, you know, I think we're used to seeing leaders scurry away from danger. He's choosing to stick right in it and stick in it with his people. Um, and it's nothing short of what leadership is and what inspiration truly is. Um, and he, you know, he feels of use and he feels called to do something and do something big. And quite frankly, uh, he's standing up to a bully. Um, and when bullies are stood up to, they don't really like it <laughs> and they mm, kind of, right. uh, fold and their weakness is shown. And so, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I won't pretend to be, a um, a political or pundit or war expert, but I think what we're seeing, um, is a, is a huge display of leadership and of courage, um, to, to stay and, and to fight. Uh, and to fight for freedom. To, to, it's really a fight for all of us, quite frankly, for anyone who lives in the, in the free world and who, who wants freedom. It's a fight for all of us. 
One of the things that I know I've been drawn to is actually coming back to World War II is I've read a lot about Churchill and just the amount of courage that Churchill showed in World War II. And one of the things I know in one of the movies about him, uh, and I've read it in books as well, is that he actually went uh, throughout the streets of London and and shook the hands of the people. He went on to, I think he's famous for having gone on a subway in the middle of World War II to truly learn, to listen, to his people to find out what they wanted to do going forward. And I think mm. Zelensky seems to have done the same thing. I mean, just going around and hearing other stories. I mean, visiting hospitals now, visiting children. And, you know, he's hearing the same thing that like these people, they don't want to leave. They want to stay and they want to be present. They want to continue to express courage and vulnerability and, and just um, they're in for the long haul. Well, it's uh, and and I mean, talk about finite and infinite. It this is kind of like the Vietnam War all over again, where you have one opponent at the time it was the U.S. who entered be- because of interest, and you had the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, who are fighting for their lives for a way of life, and it's very much the same thing that you're seeing now. I mean, and if you look at the stats from the Vietnam War, and Simon writes about this in the Infinite Game as well, um, every stat shows that the U.S. won every single battle, every single major battle, like in every single stat from a traditional war metric, the U.S. by all means won, but they didn't. (laughs) And how do you win every single major battle but lose a war? It's when your opponent has greater will, not necessarily greater resources, but greater will. And we're seeing this in Ukraine right now as well. Whereas you you, you have all these troops who are very much in the command and control environment with the with the Russians, many literally got out of their tanks or got out of their buses or got out of their planes and thought they're still on a training mission in Belarus. They didn't know that they were actually in live theater. Um, And you have an opponent that's just following orders versus one that's fighting for freedom and their way of life. And there's something to be said. I mean, we've all had someone, I think, personal in our lives that you know, has reached a point in time in their life that due to their health circumstances should should have passed away, but they had the will to keep fighting and keep going. And it has power. It has great power. Um, I mean, I saw this with my grandfather. I saw this with my grandmother that they kept fighting uh, because will has something, right? And those are the two currencies in an infinite game. It's will and resources. Uh, and so we're seeing us play out right now in in the Ukraine, I think Putin thought he would go in and two or three days later, he would have all of all of Ukraine. And we're now exactly. on what, week, week three? Four. Yeah. Or I think we're on week four, four. now. Yeah. So this leadership concept, both Churchill and Zelensky were not seen, they were not the most popular leaders for a while mm-hmm. and not seen as necessarily courageous or competent sure. or able to save a country <laughs> to save you know a, a world from you know from from disaster and 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 from the assault that, that was taking place what causes people who do not seem to have it have the leadership capabilities because of past failures past mistakes past just just past actions and lack of, of gravitas in, in some in some ways in Zelensky's case in particular, uh, but yet when they are pushed mm-hmm. and they are given the mantle of leadership, they take it and they do extraordinary things. What what is it? What is that magical thing that causes that to happen? So. Uh, I just pulled out this book. This is a book by a good friend of mine, Rich Divinity, The, the Attributes. So Rich is, a, a, he was with the, the U.S. Navy SEALs for 19 years, I believe, or close to 20. Uh, and he led training in, in, and development for the SEALs. And he wrote this book because he, he distinguished a difference between skills and attributes. So skills are things that we learn and teach. We aren't born with skills like walking, typing, playing golf, shooting a gun, riding a bike. Um, these are things that we learn and, 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 and teach. Um, they aren't inherent to our nature. And it's easy to test, measure, assess on skills. That's why we hire a lot of times for, for skills. But we know that it's, it's not just the aptitude, it's the attitude that matters. And so Rich, he actually was trying to search for a better answer for when all these burly, you know, top of their game 
um, uh, people would come and try out to become a Navy SEAL and they would get rejected and they're at the top of their game. And they were asked, why didn't we make it? And he didn't have a good answer. All he could say is you just don't have the it. Well, what's the it? Well, as it turns out, it's attributes. So attributes are these things that you cannot um, learn or teach. You have to be self-motivated and want to develop them yourself. Attributes like grit and drive and leadership ability and team ability, right? Authenticity and resilience and patience and compassion and care uh, and vulnerability. These are all attributes and we can't develop them, but we have to choose to go on a journey to go and develop them. So like, if I want to become more patient, like let's say, you know, Michael, you're just a far more naturally patient person than I am. I see the value of becoming more patient. And so I put myself in experiences where my patience increases. Things like I choose the longest way home on purpose through traffic. I choose the <laughs> longest line of, at the grocery store. I have kids. That's a really good one. I thought I was patient <laughs> a, until I, you until I had there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And so the way to truly see someone's attributes or their true colors is to expose them to stress, uncertainty, and challenge. This is why when you expose um, uh, you know, a, a dream team and you put them together and everything's going well, you're good, right? Just like when a team is winning, like a, like a sports team is winning, all of a sudden the culture in that team is, is a lot more wonderful. But when the team is losing, that's when you're truly tested. And so when you're exposed to stress, uncertainty, and, and, and challenge, your true colors show. And so I think that's what we're seeing with Zelensky. I mean, what's, what's very funny about Zelensky in his past, I mean, he's an actor and a comedian, and he played the president on a gag TV show. Right. right? He, right. he literally played the part, and he went, I can do this. And it was kind of at a moment where traditional politicians were being pushed aside for more... Uh, non-traditional uh, politicians. We've seen this all over the world. And I mean, he won the popular vote. He was chosen right. uh, and he was, he, you know, he, he had the majority of, of the vote. But I, I do think, I think this is now beyond a facade. I think you're seeing his, his true colors because you, exactly. you, can't, you can't keep this up. So yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think stress, uncertainty and challenge shows what our true colors are, which by the way, we've all been exposed to stress, uncertainty, and challenge over the past two years through this, through this pandemic. Um, and we've all seen what our true colors are, uh, which gives us an opportunity to go where are we pleased with ourselves and where's the room for us to, to grow and how can we take ourselves on to do that growing work. Thank you for listening to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Uh, Brene Brown, often we, we write and speak about her often. And I remember in one of the talks that she gave this one story and she said she was speaking to uh, like a bunch of Fortune 500 CEOs. And at one point during one of the breaks, one of the CEOs came up to her and said, Hey, so you're basically saying that I should just be vulnerable in front of this whole crowd and tell, tell, tell all of our investors that we're tanking right now. And she's like, if you want to have a company, you probably don't want to do that, but you may want to pull four or five people, you know, in the room that you have in your corner aside and, and truly tell them what's, what's happening. Um, and I know that you wrote this, this beautiful statement for which you, you said, I believe leaders should create a culture where people naturally share their gifts and struggles with one another. That way we can help one another achieve and make progress toward our common vision and goals. And so are you talking about vulnerability here and, and it's power to connect us as human beings. And if you could just say a little bit more about that. The thing with vulnerability is it needs context. So, um, you know, what Brene is referring to is, uh, 
vulnerability isn't just sharing everything with everyone all the time. That can be irresponsible and that can also be not suitable for work. <laughs> um, vulnerability is, is going, huh, I need help or huh, this isn't going the way I thought and thinking who are the responsible people to share this with or to ask for help from. Uh, vulnerability can also be uh, context in, um, I've heard Adam Grant, I think it was actually a conversation potentially between Adam and Brene where I heard this. So maybe it was the same for you, Tom. Okay. Um, but uh, um, I re recall Adam, so we're all different and we all want different things. So for some of us, we're naturally more open and for others, we're not as much. So it's still, this is still vulnerability to me. Vulnerability is still, hey team, I just need to let you know something is happening in my personal life. It's the health of a family member. That's really all I feel comfortable sharing with right now. But just know that I'm feeling a little tired. I'm feeling a little fuzzy. If you ask me for something and I feel like I'm zoned out, it's probably because I am. And just know that. Know that I also don't want to talk about this more. I will come to you if I want to talk about this more. But just to give you a context of this is where I'm at. So just I'm trying to treat myself with a bit more compassion and would appreciate if you gave me a bit of grace too over these next two, three weeks, maybe more. I'll keep you posted. Like that's vulnerability. Yeah. And it's beautiful yeah. and it's contextual, you know, and the leaders have to do it because the leaders set the tone. So if the leaders don't do it, and the leaders pretend like everything's hunky-dory and they don't tell, share stuff that's going on in their, their personal life or how it's affecting them at work. How can they expect their, their team to? So, go, so goes leaders, so goes the, so goes the culture. Um, but yeah, vulnerability doesn't mean, hey, 3,000 employees, we're out of money. Like, no, that's not <laughs> vulnerability. That's irresponsibility and you not doing your job. Vulnerability is, huh, this isn't going the way I thought I need help. And what's the responsible thing for me to share such that my team can help us uh, and know enough that they can help us? Cool. We've seen the shift between maybe some older generations who just had this buck up or shut up mentality. They never talked about their feelings ultimately compared to a lot of younger generations. And I find this even with my own kids is sometimes you you can put too much out there. We call it almost like vomiting for the whole world to, to see and to read. And that's also not helpful. So it's like, it, there has to be, a, there has to be a middle ground there where people are open and willing to share, but also not sharing too much. And it's a tough line. It is a tough line. It's, it's, it's not black and white. It is gray. Um, but context helps. So does emotional intelligence. <laughs> so does, yeah. you know, a few times where you didn't share enough and it burnt you and you shared too much and it burnt you and, and, and finding what that balance is. Um, but we, I mean, we, we know as well, I mean, this, there's a term, have you both heard of toxic positivity? Yes. Mm -hmm. So toxic positivity is very much come to the surface. I first heard about it from Susan David, um, who's a PhD out of Harvard and wrote the book, Emotional Agility. Um, and she's spoken wonderfully on toxic positivity, of which I think we've seen a lot of it through COVID, where um, there were changes in organizations, there were question marks, people were being let go, and leaders were kind of just saying, let's just talk about the future, and let's talk about where we're going. But it's like, but can we talk about the fact that 40% of my friends are no longer here, and I'm grieving? Mm. And I'm also miserable at home because all I'm doing is working. Like, can we talk about that? No, it's, we only want to talk about where we're going and only talk about good things. Like, that's not human. <laughs> we must create and carve spaces for people to share what's up and what's going on. Um, you know, and to say, it's really hard that all I'm doing is working and 40% of my friends are gone. Can we talk about that? What we resist persists. So it'll just rear its, 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 its ugly head at some point. Um, but I do think we need to create, and listening is a huge piece of this. We do need to create cultures and environments where leaders can have the difficult conversations and just listen and hear and ask questions and care. Um, you know, and when people feel cared for and people feel as though they matter, they'll run through walls for you um, and with you. So I want to, I want to work on those teams.
you mentioned emotional intelligence, and that's that's uh, a phrase that we we try to use a lot and and believe in the in the power of emotional intelligence. Would you talk about what that means to you, how it can be nurtured, and and how it makes things different? It makes things better. We've heard of the standard quotient intelligence quotient on IQ, um, but EQ is really around empathy and compassion and being aware of what someone else might be going through emotionally um, uh, to pause and have a better appropriate response. I mean, the, the number of times I know my wife doesn't want to talk about something, but I'm like, hey, you want to talk about this like now, right now, right now? And she's like, no, I don't. So <laughs> emotional intelligence is about empathy and is about compassion. Um, uh, I'd pause there because I'd love to hear your perspectives on this. And then I'd love to speak more about empathy and compassion because I've been learning a lot more about, about it as well. But how, how do you both define, I mean, I'm sure there's a textbook definition, but. Uh, well, one of the things that we, we've used often in some of our training work is we've said that people oftentimes get hired for their intellectual abilities, but sometimes get let go because of their lack of emotional abilities. And we're starting to sh see hopefully a shift because I mean, articles keep coming out like in December, Forbes magazine came out and said that empathy is the number one leadership trait in the workplace right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're starting to see this shift right now where places, cultures, organizations are trying to put more emphasis around this because it can't be simply about people's ability to get a job done any longer. Yeah. That's not worked too well. People are burnt out. They uh, are, you know, the, the great resignations occurring right now. People are leaving because they've focused so, so much on just the bottom line and getting a job done and results and not enough on people's emotional health and well-being. We hear the term um, soft skills a lot applied to things like well, first of all, listening, but empathy or, or compassion. And we, we really resist that well, term yes, and, yeah. and, and hate it, actually. Yeah. Wait a minute. The, the soft it kind of implies it's not valuable or enough. Weak. It's, it's weaker. It's not as important. All that stuff. It's a negative. It's kind of a negative term in, in, in many ways compared to other kinds of skills that, 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 that people may list. And we we just believe that emotional intelligence that having empathy having compassion is is number one mm -hmm. and and that that makes a huge difference in fact we had a uh here uh, in pennsylvania there was a in the district that we live in um uh, for our united states uh, congress representative uh there was a candidate running who was asked on the radio uh, in an interview, what do you see as the number one skill for a congressperson to have? And he said, empathy. And he had our vote at, <laughs> at hello right there. Yeah. <laughs> because absolutely, to have that empathy is just so important to, to really hear and know where people are and to resonate with where they are. And even if you're not there, right there with them and have feeling the same things or having the same experiences, but that you can feel that they, you can feel that they are feeling something about this yeah. and that you recognize and resonate with that and are aware. And so not just that that's a political thing, but it's been in every kind of leadership position and just in any relationship in life with a marriage, as you're talking about, to have that emotional intelligence to be attuned to someone else's feelings and emotions and needs, yeah. as well as your own. Mm -hmm. The same with it's a, it, emotional intelligence is about being attuned to our own and others. And that's so significant. And if we're not, we're not connecting. We're not, we're not making, you know, we're not forming deeper relationships. We're not understanding. And we're not going to get very far if we're not doing those things. And, and I think, let's face it, AI and robots are taking more technical work off the plate. But humans are still responsible for the adaptive work. And though AI can't adapt, it's still the human being that's servicing the AI. I mean, we, I think 
our work is becoming increasingly, increasingly more collaborative, which requires that we have emotional intelligence to do the work well. Otherwise, there's too much fighting and it just doesn't work or there's too much misunderstanding and it doesn't work. Um, so, yeah, so so um, I've learned. So there's different types of empathy. So one, I think empathy is more an attribute than a skill. Like we can't sit someone in a classroom and say, here, learn empathy. No, one has to realize that it's a valuable thing, put themselves into positions where they can learn about themselves and others more. And then what do you know? Your empathy muscle in increases. And so there's research that's proven. And my friend Rob Volpe just came out with a book called Tell Me More About That, um, uh, where he unpacks empathy. So there's research that's proven that there's multiple types of empathy that fire off in different parts of our brains. So one is emotional empathy, which is I literally can feel what you feel. And sometimes emotional empathy can actually cause uh, like caregiver burnout. Right. Which is if you are high, if you're high on emotional empathy and you're relating to people who have had similar life experiences, as you that's very hard because you literally feel what they feel. Uh, and sometimes there's a book by um, a professor named Bloom out of the University of Toronto who wrote The Case Against Empathy, more so to be provocative. But it's this notion that too much emotional empathy can cause us to go on empathy overload and need a break. There's another type of empathy, which is cognitive empathy, which I've become very fascinated with, which is hmm. cognitive empathy to your point. I'm aware that you're feeling I'm not exactly sure what it is you're feeling or indeed if I can feel what you feel, but I know that you're feeling and I care enough about you. And I notice this, that I'm just going to pause and say, what are you feeling? Are you okay? How can I be there for you? And, and cognitive empathy is getting to a place of understanding. I can understand the emotion you're having. But what I like about this, because empathy is the gateway to compassion, right? Empathy is a feeling. Compassion is more of an action. And we can action. only yep. get to compassionate action when we've had empathy to get us there, right? But for example, I, I, there are people that I cannot have an emotional empathetic experience with. Like it's very hard for me. Like one of my, one of my clients is a middle-aged black male who lives in, in Georgia. And he was talking to me about he really wanted a break from his home, there was just an argument in the house and he wanted some time away. So me and my white skin, I go, well, could you have gone out for a walk? And he's like, no, like, I can't do that in my neighborhood. I, I don't feel comfortable. And I'm like, wow, that is, I cannot have emotional empathy with that, but I can have cognitive empathy. I can understand. I can even try to find an experience in my understanding that could relate to that. Oh, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. They lived under Nazi rule. They had curfew. They couldn't go out and walk at night and feel safe. Okay, now I can connect. That must be hard. I can now understand that. So uh, I think cognitive empathy is really key, particularly when we're wanting to connect with people who are different than us, which we all need to do exactly. a lot more of that these days. Thanks. Thanks for articulating that because that we, obviously we're living in a time where people who are different can't seem to connect, can't seem to, you know, find any sort of agreement or won't even try. Yeah. And, and it is important just because we don't have that experience. We've never felt that feeling. It's important to at least recognize at least that someone else does in, in order to respect them as people and otherwise you know there's a lot there, all hope is lost if we if we can't do that yeah with one another so i've uh, i have a friend i just interviewed her last week or two weeks ago because i do a, a linkedin live um program her name is juliana tafour she's a um first generation immigrant from colombia and she uh she's a, a documentarian and she made this documentary called listen where she brought two people who are clearly uh, activists and advocates on three major issues, immigration, abortion, and gun control. And she invited two people who were on pol like outspoken on, on polar opposite sides of those three issues, invited them to sit down and ha have a conversation together to see 
if they could understand one another's points of view. Now, she asked them why they all accepted and came and they all agreed or they all shared. They pretty well invited. They, they wanted to come to see if they could convince the other person and to further their own personal agenda. They weren't coming in trying to connect. And two out of the three of them actually got to a place where they could say, I understand through your life experiences why you hold the views that you hold. And, I, and, and I'm okay with your choice. I'm also okay with my choice, but I get it. It was gun control and abortion. They both got to a place of I'm okay. Like they, they even formed a friendship. Um, the one was on immigration, not that it has to do with the topic. It was, it was the person coming to the table. Did they actually have enough empathy to understand and that the other person held a worthwhile point of view or had reason in their life experience to be justified in the way that they felt. Well, first we, we know Juliana. Oh, cool. Um, Amazing. We, we don't know her. We've never met her personally, but she's a member of the international listening association, which we are members of, and we've had connections and been in contact and had communications with her uh, through that organization. She's, she's also sent us, we've, we've seen the documentary oh, as well. So we knew exactly Amazing. what you were talking about and it's wonderful. So thank you. That's, that's really cool that we had that, that, that surprise connection. Yeah, cool. Uh, I hope there. I hope I just did it justice. <laughs> you did. You, you did. Good. Thank you. Well, Good. as you were describing those three scenarios, I always come back to a quote from uh, Abraham Lincoln, who once said that I I don't like that man. I need to get to know yeah. him better. And I just think if we all had that philosophy of just that, just we have to work harder to get to that level of understanding. That certainly does not mean that we always agree, um, because I think those are all th three hot button issues that you could either be far right or far left on any one of those things. But I think if we can stay at the table to at least come to a level of understanding, even if we don't agree. Totally. To come to an understanding of why is it that you hold the views that you hold? And if, and if, if, if we could like, so there, there's so much hatred and division that's going on, but so often I would say 99% of the time we have hatred towards someone we have a zero relationship with. Like, how, how is that possible? Um, there's another brilliant documentary by Dia Khan uh, called Meeting with the Enemy. Have you heard of this one? So Dia is no. a, a Muslim woman from the UK, I believe. I don't know if she's originally born in the UK, but that's where she calls home, I believe. And she um, unfortunately was exposed to quite a bit of trolling um, uh, and racist banter online, um, particularly coming uh, from the UK and, and the US. And so she decided to go uh, and meet the very people who were quote unquote, her enemy, the ones who hated her. She had no hatred toward them, but they hated her. And so she just wanted to go meet them. Um, and so she ended up meeting them in Charlottesville in 2017. And what was it? June or July, July of 2017, when the rally in Charlottesville happened. It was just fluke. But she ended up forming close relationships with very senior people who then said, I've lived my entire life being told that I'm supposed to hate you, but yet you're a better, more decent human being and friend to me than people that I've called a brother and a sister. And they couldn't reconcile that. And some people actually left the white nationalist party because they, their world was, was shaken uh, because she actually, as the oppressed went and developed em empathetic relationships with them. Um, and I, I know at least one senior person left because they just couldn't reconcile that. So listening in relationship for the win again. Absolutely. Uh, we hope this, you see a parallel here, but, it sounds to us like you have a very similar why as, as we do. And it sounds like your next book is all about listening. Could we just for a few minutes just shift gears and, and talk about why, like our why, uh, you know, you've, you've referenced Simon Sinek's book, start with the why, And, and, um, you know, just tell us a little bit about why you have your why, and then mm -hmm. explain how all of us can find and foster our own why for our work and our relationships and our lives. Because we we talk with so many people that just are living without a sense of meaning and purpose. Every single one of us has 
a purpose or has a why. And our, our purpose is our origin story. It's who we are and who we are comes from our past. And so the funny thing about a purpose or a why is you can't find it on your own. It's very hard to do so. And the reason being is it's very hard to read the label on the jar when you're stuck inside the jar yourself. So when I joined Simon's team, I've just thought I'm inspired by that guy. I, I'm similar to him. He and I have similar strengths. I believe in his vision. My why is just his why. And I kind of just adopted his why. But as it turns out, that was quite disempowering because I'm my own person and I have my own life experiences. And though we are similar and aligned on many things, we're different. You know, I'm my own unique person and I have different things that I can contribute and give than him. And so I worked with someone uh, on the team, the CEO at the time, Kim, and she took me through the process, which is the, to find your purpose, you talk about your past. You talk about the meaningful moments, the meaningful people from as early as your childhood to your school-aged years, to your working years, to your adult life, and just those moments and those people that if it weren't for those sometimes seemingly insignificant but memorable moments uh, that stand out in your memory, those are the data points that form your purpose and form your, your why. And so, I mean, anyone can do this. You can take out a sheet of paper, draw a line down the middle, which I'll affectionately call the, the line of emotional neutrality. And then you have peaks and valleys. Peaks are these moments in your life, these specific moments that you loved being a part of. They were positive in nature. And then you have your valleys as well. These moments there where you don't want to relive them or revisit them. Perhaps it was a bad boss or being on a really a team with not a great culture um, or it was something traumatic from, from your past, something that didn't go well. Um, one of mine was... Uh, my grandmother's funeral. Like, I don't want to go back there, but the moment of empathy and connection I had with my mom, understanding what it must've been like for her to lose her dad at the age of 15. And that hug we shared, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. Don't want to be back in that room, but I'm glad I had that experience. And so peaks and valleys are just as valuable. And it's talking to someone who can listen and ask open-ended objective questions and after three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine of these stories, there just tends to become a pattern uh, of, 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 of consistent themes that keep coming up uh, that form someone's purpose and form their values as well. Uh, and then sharing it back with them, it can be a quite affirming experience. I've often heard people say that like your sense of call is with you your whole life, but how you live out your sense of call may change multiple times throughout your life. Our, our sort of perspective, and when I say our, I mean the work that I've done with Simon Sinek over the years, what we've found is by the time you're about 16 to 20 years old, you typically have enough life experience and a, a, enough uh, development to have your, your purpose. It's, a, it's, it's our belief that once you have your purpose at about 20, that's your, that's your, your purpose. However, I know that every cell in our bodies can change after seven years. I, if, if you want to challenge me to an arm wrestle to be like one's purpose can change. Yeah, whatever. Fine. As long as you're using your strengths to contribute to something bigger than yourself, rock on. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the youngest person I've done a, a purpose discovery with was 16. I still know them today. And the purpose we got when they were 16 is, is as alive and well as today ironically she went through the process a second time just to reconnect to it because it's words um but yeah i mean when my first child was born one of my mentors said to me you have a new why you have a new purpose and i said uh-uh just stakes are higher same purpose but more is more's on the line so i mean my i have a clear sense of why i do what i do every day which is which is this to engage with people in meaningful ways so that we connect with depth and live in a more fulfilled world. And I love finding any opportunity that I can do to advance that. Um, and I'll be doing that for the rest of my life. Uh, now, You're good at it. thank you. <laughs> it could evolve, it could morph, but I don't, I don't think that it's gonna change. I might find better words to say it, um, but who knows, you know, who knows? Uh, it's definitely who I've become as I've, as I've uh, grown into myself. 
Well, I think uh, I think we we realize from this conversation, we realize from a lot of things we've read and heard, you know, interviews with you. But but in this conversation, it's even becoming more clear. I think we have very much the same why. The, the three of us, very 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 similar. You just articulated it really well. Thank you. And uh, and so that's that's pretty neat, and we appreciate that. I think we share a similar vision of the world. I think all three of us here believe. As human beings, we should have more empathy. We should have more compassion. What are the gateways to empathy and compassion? Uh, curiosity, questions, listening. Like there's there's no debate on that here, <laughs> you know. And so I and so I just I point that out because there's each unique work that we all do, um, and yet I think we're all contributing to the similar vision, uh, which is really which is really exciting and inspiring. It's a great way to put it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you. You've also written that you, you believe that we, that we as people need to create a more consistent time and space for creativity and for focus. Love that. We struggle all the time. We talk about this all the time. We have to find, we need more space. We need more time to be able to think, yeah. to be able to vision, to be able to dream, to be able to figure some things out. To, and so tell us how you do that. Tell us how can you can you how do we how do we create that space, yeah, that consistent space to do those things which we believe we believe well, are we essential. Do. We do. Yeah, I mean, uh, a friend of mine near Al wrote a book, Indistractable, and it essentially is we're so connected to our devices. Like when when do you come up with your best ideas? It's in those moments of nothing. It's when you're 3 a.m. for me, 3 a.m. Yeah. But it's also going yeah. out for a walk in nature. We do that all the time. We just did that right before this conversation. We went out and walked by the river that's right outside the, the window here and just, you know, talked about some things that were we needed to talk about uh, to, you know, to find some clarity and answers. And we do that all the time. And that really helps. Getting away from distractions. Getting away from distractions. Totally. Totally. And it's just that it's, that's why we have mindfulness and yoga. And it's why, you know, you turn your notifications on silent or you leave your phone and you only take one phone, you know, if you're going into the wilderness, whatever it might be. So I, 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 well, I I'm going to mess up the stats on this, but it takes some 20 to 30 minutes to get into deep focus work. And as soon as you're interrupted out of it, like a buzz of being a beep, like you, you have to restart. Um, uh, and so uh, I definitely agree with focus time and creativity and, and getting away from it all. How do you get away from it all? You get away from it all. <laughs> and there are apps that can help. There are apps that can help. And I can understand that it's, you know, especially hard as we've all, you know, had to go through and may still need to continue to go through quarantines and this and that and the other, but it's literally car carving the time and the space. And I think a big piece of it is, uh, is disconnecting. Um, and I, I think our technology will become better and better and better that it will help us do that. I really, I really want to believe that it will, as opposed to always be competing for our attention because our eyeballs are the product. I like to see a parallel between you just explaining about finding our why and to the lack of space that we sometimes give ourselves and how we can, when, uh, essentially what happens when we don't find that space and how we can easily lose sense of our, lose that sense of purpose uh, of staying true to who we are. Uh, I know that happens for us all the time is just like, we can just overschedule ourselves with things that ultimately don't connect with why we actually get out of bed every day. Well, it's also the impact of pressure on our decisions and our values and our ethics. So I'm writing about this right now on ethical fading and of, um, so are you familiar with the Good Samaritan study? I don't believe so. Say more about it. That's a helpful tip to learn how to listen better. Ask open-ended questions. Um, uh, so <laughs> the Good Samaritan is a passage in the Bible, Luke 10, 29. And it tells a fable of a high priest who uh, uh, walks by a stranger on the side of the road who needs help. And a lowly shepherd um, comes and helps the person in need. Uh, 
uh, and who this is where we get the the term because the the this from Samaria. So this is where we get the term Good Samaritan. And so um, uh, there are these two social scientists, these psychologists who wanted to put the Good Samaritan passage into practice. And so they went to the Princeton Theological Seminary, got a bunch of theologians, people who were studying to be priests, um, and asked them to, to they they were t testing a bunch of hypotheses. So some of them um, were supposed to talk about the Good Samaritan study. Others were supposed to talk about something else. Um, but the, the main crux and the main finding was the impact of time pressure on people's decisions, their ethics and their values. And so the biggest finding was that they put people into three different groups, low rush, medium rush, and high rush. Low rush was, oh, Michael, good, you're here. Everyone's waiting to listen to your talk. Go down this hallway, go get them. Medium rush is, oh, Tom, good, you're here, go now. Because if you don't go now, you're gonna be late. Everyone's waiting. And then Stephen, you're here, you're late. Where have you been? This is high rush. Everyone's been waiting for you. You're 15 minutes late, go. Now on the pathway from the green room to the speaking room, there's only one way to go. And on the way, there was an older gentleman lying down on the floor, coughing in an obvious distress. And the question is, what percentage of the theologians stop and help and essentially live <laughs> the message from the Good Samaritan? Kind of trippy, very meta. And so what do you think uh, on the low rush? So Michael's group, where you got time, what percentage of people stopped and, and, and helped? I don't know. Uh, I, I, my guess that it could have been low. Low percentage? Tom, um, thoughts? I'd say it's 50-50. So 63%. 63% of people okay. stopped and helped, which is you're like, oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Higher than okay. I thought, maybe. What about medium yeah, rush? Yeah, it's higher than I thought. Okay. So now now medium <laughs> rush. This is where you're on time, but you got to go. Uh, and if you don't go now, you're late. Higher or lower than 63? I'd say Lower. It was 45. Wow. It was 45, so lower. Mm. And then the high rush, my group, where I'm late and my, my heart is beating and I'm frantically trying to find the room. What do you think, Michael? Even lower? Yeah, 10%. 10% of people, oh. when you add the pressure, don't live the very message that they're supposed to be espousing. Now, in some instances, people stepped over the person who was coughing in distress and on the floor. Um, and for me, I mean, 63% isn't even that high, like, yeah. you know, and yeah. I think it would be higher if they said, Hey, for all those who signed up, there's an orientation, uh, because we need to remind you what it means. And if you give a talk on this, you must live the message. Um, I think it could even be higher, yeah. but it's a fascinating study. There are some other factors and other metrics, but the biggest finding was they saw that the impact of time pressure on people's behavior was correlational such a great way to end our conversation but i just think we hope we're imploring the world to just live this message we we all need to live the message i mean it's great to have these skills and be inspired but if we don't actually go out and live it it's not going to have the kind of impact that we're looking for yeah and we need it and it's a choice for all of us to do it for the person to the left of us and right of us such that they'll do it to the person to the left of them and right of them and if we create these, this culture and society where we just care for one another, it ripples. It's positively contagious. So I appreciate the, the both of you for the great work that you're doing to make it so. And I know that I'm going to keep beating this, this drum and, walk, and trying to walk the talk as well. You've written, said that uh, the greatest, one of the greatest human forces is hope. Where do you see the hope? Uh, for a brighter future? Where do you see the hope in the work that you're doing and the work that we are, you know, that we, we are all engaged in in one way or another? What, what, where, what is the hope for you as we close out this conversation today? Thank you. It's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I know the two most powerful human forces are hope and each other, right? When we have hope, which is the belief that tomorrow can be better and brighter. And when we have each other, we have everything we need. Um, and look no further than Viktor Frankl's man's search for, for meaning, for proof on, on that one. Um, and we're seeing it every day. Um, for me, what gives me hope is that there's an appetite for this conversation and there's an appetite for 
people to want to bring this message to life. Um, the fact that we're having this conversation right now gives me hope. Um, and quite frankly, the great resignation and great talent swap gives me hope because people are voting. Um, they're, people are voting with their feet. Uh, you know, the, the, the number A, the number of senior leaders that I'm working with who are saying, is this it? The number of people who are in the middle saying, I don't want to go back to the office if I have to put on that, that corporate camouflage again. I want to be me. I want to show up to work in my soccer jersey and cheer for my team and have long hair. Like, ugh. you know, and I think we're going to see that the, the future organization is going to be one that offers greater flexibility and greater humanity. And so that's what's giving me hope these days is that I think there's far more of a desire, far more of an appetite and far more um, rubber meets the road. Uh, it's not enough just to talk about it anymore. We actually have to 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 make it count and do it. Um, and I'm ready to do that work. You know, I'm I, I I'm doing it, and I want to keep doing it. So uh, that's that's what gives me hope. Well, thanks for giving us hope. It gives us hope too. Having conversations like this always engages and enlivens us and inspires us. And uh, so, Shed, you. how could people find out more about you and, and especially about your upcoming book? Thank you. Yeah, I believe for the time being, I'm the only Stephen Chabletsky in the entire 7.9 billion <laughs> population. So, all you, all you handfuls of Chabletskys out there, no. No uh, Stevens, please. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can Google me and find me in all, all, all the places. I'm most active on LinkedIn. Uh, and my website, which should be live in a couple of weeks here, is shedinspires.com. Nice. Okay. Well, thanks. It's been great. It's been a wonderful conversation. You've brightened our day. You've given us hope, as we've said, and uh, we appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you both. I hope this conversation helps your listeners as well. Appreciate it. One of the things that really stood out to me is a statement that we know that we've heard Stephen use in some of his writing and speaking that he imagines a world in which the vast majority of people wake up inspired, feel safe wherever they are and end the day fulfilled by the work that they do. I think that's something that you and I are striving to do here at Someone to Tell To and our team is we just want people to feel as if they have a voice, that they have a place in yeah. this world. And so it was nice to connect with Stephen Shed today, um, just to hear more about how he's inspiring the world, helping people find their why and their purpose and their fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I too resonate with that as well as the, like, as you mentioned, finding a voice. That it, one of his passions is helping to people to find that voice, and we we hope that for everyone, because as is always one of it's one of our values, one of our. Uh, and, a, and a vision that everyone would know that their voice matters. Everyone would know that they have a voice and it's worth sharing. It's worth hearing and that they are worth it. And he's, you know, the work that he does, the, the, the things that he says and writes about are about that, are about that too. So we just encourage you to find Shed on LinkedIn. As he mentioned, that's his primary uh, social media platform and, and see some of the, the things that he's written about and, and some of his speaking engagements. As, as he mentioned in the interview, another connection of ours is Juliana Tarfer and uh, the documentary. So thank you again for, for joining with us. We appreciate you. We appreciate our sponsors. We uh, appreciate everyone who values what it means to listen with intention, to, to listen well, to have empathy, to, to be compassionate, to understand vulnerability and its importance uh, for our relationships. So we're grateful that you could join us and we thank you until we listen again. <laughs>